Um, as Natalie said, good morning everyone. Um, as Natalie said, my name's Paul, I'm one of the pastors here of the church and it's my privilege to lead the team. Um, it's, it's quite amazing that I'm actually here today as I've, I've been left um, unsupported for the last two days. My good lady wife, um, Chloe, has uh, had a weekend away with some of her friends and so the fact that I am uh, here and I think that all four of my boys are somewhere in the building is, is quite a miracle. Um, I'm, I'm amazed actually, I'm amazed at how much Chloe manages to get done because by the time I'd watched the uh, India v England one day international on Friday and then England v Argentina yesterday morning and then the Grand Prix qualifying in the afternoon to be quite honest I could only just get the washing out on the line and, and, and then it rained and so I didn't see any point, I don't know why I bothered doing any washing at all. Um, but uh, no, so, so we're all here and I think we're just about, uh, we're just about surviving. I thought Natalie, it's great to have Natalie with us. I thought she did really well with the notices and it's great to welcome her onto the team. Uh, she started in September and uh, will be looking to uh, work with us with community groups. Um, she's also going to be looking uh, as we explore how we can engage and support the poor in our community in a more effective way. So Natalie will be looking at that and she'll also be uh, helping us with things like website, communication and those sorts of areas. It's also great to uh, welcome Laurie Young. She's joining the uh, team. She's taking over from uh, Paul Jempson, who has been doing the uh, finance for the last few years. He's done an excellent, excellent job um, and we're very grateful to him. Um, but it's brilliant to have Laurie joining us. And lastly, it's great to have Malcolm Rose, who has also joined uh, the team. Um, he's uh, joining on Sue's admin team and uh, he's looking to support that, that whole area. Wow, I can, I can breathe for a second. Um, we're working our way through at the moment um, a series in John's Gospel. So if you've got your Bible, uh, do turn to uh, John chapter 7. We'll be picking it up in verse 53 and I'll be spending a little bit of time uh, in that in a little while. As, as Natalie shared um, in the notices, um, in a few weeks' time we've got our season of prayer, fasting and giving starting. And I just wondered if you've had a chance yet to think about this season coming up. I wondered if you've had a chance yet to think about maybe how are you going to engage in the whole area of prayer and fasting? And if you thought about what meetings maybe could I get along to? What, what could I fast from as I look to push into God, as I look to get closer to him and make more space and time for him? I wonder as well if you've had a chance to think about the whole area of giving. Well, have you had the chance yet to think about how much am I going to give in this four-week season? How much is it I'm going to pledge over that time. And I just wanted to take a few moments before I preach um, to explain um, why it is um, that we're having uh, this season and particularly why it is that we're looking for or we're asking for you to fill in pledge forms. As you know, we are we're passionate to see people respond to the Gospel. You know, we we love it when they do. And although there's quite a number of us here 
and it was great having the German students with us for the first hour um, and you get a glimpse of what it would be like with another 60 or 70 with us on a Sunday morning. There are, there are hundreds of thousands of people right around us who, nothing, who know nothing of the Gospel, they know nothing of church, they know nothing of the saving hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And God has given us a great facility and, and to be quite honest, a great opportunity to make him famous and to see lives changed and transformed by the Gospel. And so as we look to invest into this building and we look to um, develop the other side of this petition, we'll be looking to provide more space for our children at the moment and I just had a look as they were going in this morning. There was absolutely loads and loads of youngsters going into Megamix this morning and the Alpha Room is frequently very, very busy. I praise God that uh, I'm not in that uh, particular particular field of serving. It looks very hectic in a small space. We need to create, we need more space for our children and for our youth as well so they can go out on a Sunday morning. So that's just a practical thing. We need more space because actually if more people start coming with their children and young people, there isn't actually the place to put them. But not only that, I think this building can be used in a much greater way to see Jesus made famous just through the week. And so one of the things we're looking to do as well is put the whole coffee area in, the coffee bar be open during the week, may provide a bit of employment as well, but actually it's just an opportunity with the back field and with all the facilities and things we can do for our building to be much more available during the week, much more available for people to come in and out and to use it effectively. And uh, as we were thinking and praying about this season, we thought rather than just having what we have done in the past, which is more sort of traditional one-off gift days, we thought we would have a, a season and an opportunity for you not just to give us a one-off, but actually to pledge giving over the next 15 months. And so we're asking um, for you as a church, you if you're, you're with us and you say, yeah, I call this place um, my home, this is where I get spiritually fed, to seek God and pray and ask him, how much should I give, how much should my household give over the next 15 months? Now there's three reasons uh, that we're doing that. The first one is just that it helps us as a church to plan effectively. We, we have an idea of what is going to be coming in to support this, um, this, this project, this thing that God has placed on our hearts. Secondly, I think it helps us that when we go to banks, which is more than likely what we'll have to do, although please pray that we don't, but if we have to go to banks, it helps us to go to them and it gives us credibility um, with lenders. But the third reason, and to be quite honest, it is, I think, the main reason we're doing it. I think it helps us as individuals to plan and give in probably a, a, at a different level. Because rather than giving out of what I've got or maybe what I may have in the next few months, it enables you to adjust your finance and your expenditure so that you can give at a different level for the next 15 months. You may give at a level that you, you couldn't sustain longer than 15 months, but actually, no, I feel God is laying something on my heart and so that's what I'm going to do. So for myself and Chloe and our household... We feel that God has placed a, a, a percentage on our hearts to give away. So it's, it's an upping from what we're giving on a monthly level. It's, it's a step up. We don't really have any savings in our household. Some of you will do. We, we don't. And so we're looking to increase our giving in a significant way. And we feel God's placed a certain percentage on our hearts. We're not quite certain how we're going to get there yet. But we, we're, starting to, we're starting to have a few ideas. One of them 
about, about 15 months ago it was actually, um, I had a choice of either going for a gym membership or getting Sky Sports. And I thought, I'll go for Sky Sports, I'm not, I'm not going to go for a gym membership. And so one of the things that, that we're looking to do is we will, we will cancel that and that, that block of money, some of that, well, that, all of that money, can go towards what we feel God has placed on our heart to increase our giving by. And so there's, that, there's some uh, adjustments we can make to our mortgages and things like that we can do so that we can give at a higher, um, a higher level for this coming season. And I think for all of you it would be different things. Even as I'm speaking now, I pray that God will be placing things on your heart. When I spoke to the core team um, earlier in the week, um, some of them were talking about, well, God's put a, given me a lump sum. I think that is the figure that I'm to give. But even then, they said as a caveat, with, as a caveat they said, look, the likelihood is, as we go through this season of prayer, fasting and giving, it's probably going to go up anyway. Do you know I mean? God's, God's going to stir us and speak to us about it. At the church vision and finance meeting a few months ago, I shared the wonderful news that there was someone in the church who felt prompted by God to sell property and uh, they're looking to give a a considerable gift to this in the region of £150,000, which is absolutely wonderful. But in a sense, it it doesn't matter as to the amount, it's, it's a heart response. It's responding to what God is placing on your heart, being open to him, and looking to respond in faith and obedience to him. And I I would just ask you, in this season, as we come up to this season of prayer, fasting and giving, during this season of prayer, fasting and giving, please come with open hearts. Please come seeking him. Have a look at your bank statements. Have a think. Just see how can you engage. Because I believe God is calling us to some wonderful things in the future, but, but the only way we'll achieve them is as we all go together. We all step together. And whether it's, whether it's £5 a week, you've made to, managed to adjust your shopping bill or, or some things like that so you can give a bit extra that way, or whether it's tens, £20,000, it, it, it's, it's, it's all playing our part. I hope you don't mind me sharing personal experience, but I'm hoping that will be helpful to you um, as you think and pray personally about how you engage in this season. This morning we're looking at a very provoking passage in John chapter um, 7. It starts at verse 53 and then it goes into the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Now as I say that, if you're reading from the NIV Bible or the um, English Standard Version Bible, this passage I'm going to speak from is actually in brackets. There There is doubt as to whether this passage should be in John's Gospel. Both the NIV and the ESV put it in brackets to highlight its weakness and uh, there'll be a little uh, uh, sub-note there saying that these verses don't um, or are not included in the earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel. So the earliest uh, sort of uh, copies of John's Gospel that we've got, this particular section of scripture is not included there. Now there may be two reasons for that. One is that it was not in the original. John never wrote it. Some people wonder if it should be at the end of Luke's Gospel. It's maybe more in Luke's style than it is in John's. Or some other people, I think uh, Mark Driscoll takes this view, um, he, he believes that maybe it was taken out because it was a bit offensive, it was a bit difficult for the early church to handle, so the early church fathers took it out and then they put it in a little bit later. 
I'm not quite certain as to why it wasn't in there in the original, but as the ESV uh, study Bible says, there is nothing in it unworthy of sound doctrine. And it has been included in the canon of Scripture. So when the Bible was put together, it was included in that canon anyway. As I was praying about John chapter 8, I felt this is where I wanted to plant myself for the morning and I hope that it will be a provoking uh, time as we look at it together. And so I think that's where we're going to go. Let's use this passage and apply it to our advantage. And I believe that as we look at this, this scripture that is very, very provoking, I think it will stir our hearts and cause us to seek God. So let's just pray and we'll dive into it. Lord, thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us. Lord, I thank you just as we worship this morning, we, um, yeah, we just encountered your faithfulness again, we sense your spirit. Lord, it is so good to be with you. So good to be part of your church. So good, Lord, that you know us by name. And I pray, Lord, that as I look at this passage, I pray, Lord, I would do it justice. I ask you, please enable me to speak with real clarity and boldness. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would do your work in our hearts, I pray. Amen. So let's read it together. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. (coughs) They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman standing there, still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go, and leave your life of sin. This morning we're going to look at this passage under four headings. What about Christ? What about us? What about church? And then lastly, what about our community or what about Hastings? This story is set at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. We looked at that last week where Jesus stood up and in a loud voice proclaimed, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So that feast, it's an eight-day feast, it has just finished. Most people, out of the tens of thousands of people, had gone to their towns and surrounding villages. Um, Jesus, however, remained in the Jerusalem area and the next day he comes back into the temple and he starts to teach. Opposition has been growing to Jesus' ministry 
and by the end of chapter 8 it will grow even stronger to the point where the religious leaders are even considering stoning him. I think it says they pick up stones to throw at him. And we come across this, um, I, I don't quite know how to describe it, it's a very provoking, it's a, it's a vicious scene, it is, not, it is not a nice thing in any way. And, and a woman who has been caught in the very act of adultery is paraded before Jesus. I imagine she was dragged in front of him. From the original text we know, or, or it's certainly implied, is that she was married that she was a married woman and the evidence of her wrongdoing is conclusive. It, it wasn't just before, it wasn't just after, it was during the act of adultery that she was caught and she was dragged in front of Jesus. The setting isn't like a church building setting, the setting is like being in Priory Meadow Shopping Centre. So there would have been a lot of people mingling about, there would have been a lot of people listening um, to Jesus, probably hundreds of people, when the religious leaders bring this woman before him. It would have been a commotion. There would have been a scene. Jesus is teaching and they interrupt. It's a, it's a horrendous scene, probably a bit like some sort of mob mentality, and the possible outcome at the end, or the likely outcome at the end, is death for this woman. But as we've just read in the text, it's, it's not really about this woman, it's not about the adultery, it's actually an attempt to trap Jesus. It says it right in the middle of the verses we read, they were, they were keen to trap Jesus. And the way the trap worked is this, if Jesus said, yes, it is, um, sorry, let's check quick, follow my notes, if Jesus says, don't stone her, he is contravening what the law says. And if, if as a teacher, a Jewish teacher, he contravenes the law, he would be accused of being a false prophet and he would lose credibility. If he's, if he's saying something different to what the law says, then, then don't listen to him. And we know from Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, it says this, it says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. Now, I know this, this seems very harsh. It seems, for our Western minds, it's sort of, how do we get our heads around this? But it does show, it shows the severity of which Jesus or, the, or God views sin. The law says that both the man and the woman are to share the same punishment. And so in some ways the Pharisees are right in the exactness of the law. But if Jesus were to say, no, 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 do stone her. This is what the law says, yes, yeah, let, she, should, she should be stoned. There's, there's two dangers in that as well. Firstly, Jesus has a clear reputation and it's in his heart. He's a friend of tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes. They, they know that. They, they, they're coming to try and expose that. They're try, coming to try and try. And, and he has great compassion for people from all walks of life. You know, in a sense, how can he reach out to people in that situation if he's, if he's had just had a woman stoned? But secondly, capital punishment was only allowed for the Roman um, government of the day. 
The Jew- Jewish government weren't allowed to do it. So Jesus is caught in a very difficult situation. I think the phrase caught between a rock and a hard place probably suits this situation. If he does, he's in trouble and if he doesn't, he's in trouble. However, from the outset, Jesus is aware of their hypocrisy, that they're looking to trap him and in a sense, really, this woman is only just being used in order to trap him. And the first thing he does is he doesn't answer them. You'll notice that, he just writes in the sand on the ground. We don't know what he wrote, but he just wrote in the sand. And, and if, you're, if you're sort of a hypocrite, if you're a bit self-righteous, there's nothing more frustrating when you ask a quite serious question if someone completely ignores you. But when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and carried on writing in the ground. At this, those who began, sorry, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I wonder if the reason why it was the older ones first is because generally as you get older, you can live with more regret or you're more aware of your weakness and your frailty. Maybe that's why they went first. Until only Jesus was left. And then Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now, go now and leave your life of sin. And this this is an amazing passage. It reflects something of the holiness of God but it also reflects something of the mercy of God. And it's, it's just this, these sort of themes that I want to unpack as we look at that this morning. Now, when we read this passage, I think there are two uh, dangers um, that we could fall into, two things we could fall into if we only read this at a superficial um, level. The first one is this. You can read this passage and you can think, well, the Pharisees got in trouble for confronting sin... Maybe it's wrong. Maybe we should not confront sin. Hey, because there is no one here who is without sin themselves. But if you look at this, it's very clear there is an underlying theme in this passage and this is that the Pharisees are full of hypocrisy. The Pharisees used to use the law to make themselves feel good and everyone else feel inadequate. The Pharisees used the law to prove their own righteousness But God gave us the law to highlight our sin. The religious leaders of the day came with arrogance and pride and hatred. They were actually looking to trap Jesus. They wanted to get him in trouble, possibly murder. All of those things were in their hearts when they came, but they dragged this woman who was caught in adultery. It says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And in some ways the religious leader's arrogance and pride was just as wrong as this woman's adultery. They viewed themselves as much better, but they weren't. 
And in this passage we find Jesus is confronting them with a need for consistency in passing judgment. There's a need need for consistency in lifestyle. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, we just turn to that. Jesus says this, it's about exactly this thing. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And what Jesus is coming across here is their hypocrisy. You see, the Pharisees were riddled with sin of pride and arrogance in their own lives. They had, as it were, massive planks out of the front of their own eyes, walking around, which they had no intention of removing, didn't see, and if anyone had approached them, they would have probably responded quite aggressively. But they were looking to remove sin and passing judgment on other people instead. Jesus is not saying that we're not to confront sin in one another or look to encourage people in that way. He's just saying we've got to be consistent. And with the measure that we look to others, we we, we need to be passing judgement on ourselves as well. In Romans 12 verse 3 it says, it talks about, um, think of yourselves with sober judgement. In 2 Timothy 3.16 it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So there's a place for a rebuke or for training. In Matthew 18 verses 15 to 7 it talks about look, if your brother is caught in sin, go to him. Try to convince him that his way is wrong. Not, not harshly but with love, trying to win him over. So there is a place for this. In Galatians 6 verse 1 it says, um, we'll have a quick, I'll quickly turn to it so I can read it out. In Galatians 6 First one, it says this, Brothers or sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. So in no way is Jesus saying, or should we use this story to say, no, we, we, we shouldn't look to correct or encourage or strengthen one another. It's not saying that, but it is saying that we, we should think of ourselves with sober judgement that we should um, view ourselves in a sober way, we should probably be checking our own lives first, checking our own hearts first. In Psalm 139, right at the very end, it says something about, search my heart, O Lord, and see if there is any offensive way in me. Test me and lead me in the way everlasting. So, so the Bible is full of, yes, that encourage each other, strengthen each other, but actually check yourselves as well. Don't, don't be a hypocrite. And so that is the first danger. The first danger could be from reading this passage in a superficial way is you think, actually, well, no, we better not at all speak into one another's lives. We we couldn't possibly do that when that is the very opposite of what we should be doing as a church. That's what creates the opportunity for us to be so strong is the fact that we are open to one another that we do invite people to speak in, that we do look for both positive encouragement and at times a little bit of work, just to, you know, if there's a few rough edges that need knocking off. 
It's what makes us strong as a church. A very big positive for this, this woman is that she is brought before Jesus and she knows she is guilty. The Pharisees were just as guilty of other sins, but they came with pride and arrogance and were not open to Jesus. And something that highlights the Pharisees' hypocrisy even more is this. And any of you who are a little bit sharp here, you'll you'll pick this up. You cannot commit adultery on your own. There are many sins you can do on your own. Adultery is not one of them. And if she was caught in the act of adultery, it means that there was someone else there that they did not bring with them. For some reason, they dragged the woman there, but they did not bring the man. So at its its least, it is very, very unfair. There is massive inconsistency, or at its worst, it is a set-up. And the Pharisees have arranged this because they, wanna, they want to get Jesus in trouble. But either way, it, it continues to show the hypocrisy from which they brought this poor woman. The second danger in this passage that you can pick up is that you may pick the view up, well, maybe adultery isn't that bad. You know, in a sense, the woman got away scot-free. It was the Pharisees that went away with a flea in the ear, their ear. I think the first thing just to say is nowhere in this passage does Jesus condone this woman's behaviour. There are mitigating circumstances. When I read it, I feel quite sorry for her. It, it, I don't know about you guys, but when I read it, it seems massively harsh. But nowhere in this passage does Jesus condone her behaviour. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, if you read the whole of Scripture as a whole, that the Bible views adultery very seriously. It tears marriages apart, tears families apart, can have a devastating effect on children involved. It undermines society as a whole. It breaks, it breaks the covenant relationship. A relationship, marriage is a relationship that is, is meant to reflect Christ and the church and, and, and adultery breaks that. Cuts at the very heart of it. At the end of the passage, we, we see that forgiveness is offered. Jesus says, I, I do not, neither do I condemn you, but he, he finishes it with a caveat, go now and leave your life of sin. Finish with that lifestyle. I, I, I don't condone your behaviour. Finish with it. Leave that life of sin. Um, at the end of Luke 7, verse 50, and in Luke 8, verse 48, where there are two other women that come to Jesus in great need. They throw themselves at Jesus' feet. There he says to them, um, he says, go now... Oh, no, he doesn't. What does he say? He says, go in peace. But to this woman he says, no, go leave your life of sin. Clearly Jesus is looking for repentance here, seen in action. Tom Wright says this, forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter, but that God is choosing to set it it aside or deal with it in a different way. All sin comes at a cost. It has a penalty. And within a relatively short time frame, Jesus would be stretched out 
on the cross because of this woman's adultery. He would have been nailed to the cross because of it. In the passage, Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. In that place, there was one without sin. There was one who had never sinned and who has never sinned since then either. Jesus could have stretched out his arms and picked up a stone and thrown it at this woman because she was guilty of sin. But he didn't. Later on, he stretched out his arms and had nails driven in them and through his feet. And that's, with, that's how he paid the penalty for this woman's sin. As Bruce Milne says, to be able to say, neither do I condemn you, cost Jesus the hell of Calvary. To be able to say, neither do I condemn you, cost Jesus the hell of Calvary. And overall, in this account, what we see is we see the, the awesome holiness of God and yet the great depths of his mercy. What about you this morning? It's, it's a very provoking passage. Where do you sit? Do you, do you associate with the woman that's caught in the headlights? You know that you are dirty and rotten, that you deserve nothing but judgement. Possibly you even feel you shouldn't be here. Everyone here is far too holy for me to be here. The same Jesus who 2,000 years ago said, neither do I condemn you and stretched out his arms and paid the penalty for her sin is the same Jesus that is here today who is willing to stretch out his arms, have nails driven in them and pay the penalty for our sin. Whether it's adultery, whether it's pride and arrogance of the Pharisees, in some ways it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ pays the price for your sin if you choose to give it to him. There is mercy and grace available here that is deeper than your deepest sin. It's broader than the number that you have done. It will wash over them. It will wash them away. It will cleanse you from every guilty thought, every rotten thing you've ever done, whether it's been done to you or done by you. The grace and the mercy and the love of God is broader and higher and deeper and stronger to rush in and flood your life and set you free. And the truth is the same if it's the first time you've ever heard this good news about Jesus or it's the hundredth time you've ever heard this good news about Jesus. The truth is the same. It's the same. He's available to pay the price for your sin and all of your rottenness. 
Whether you've been a Christian for 30 years and over the last three or four days you know you've, you've lived a stinker. The grace of God is available today if you come humbly, if you come contritely, knowing, oh God, I need you and I need you to pay the price for my sin. But if you come like the Pharisee, if you come this morning and you are so aware of everyone else's sin, but in your own heart, when it really gets down to it, you think, I've I've no need of a saviour. There is no mercy or grace available for you today unless you humble yourself and say, I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus Christ. The wonderful grace of the gospel though is available free of charge for every single one of you if you choose to accept him. What about us as a church? I reckon, and I think this is probably contained with all of us really, but I reckon when I I, I look at society, I look at those around us, I reckon that probably society is a mixture of the Pharisee and the woman caught in adultery. I listen to Radio 5, sort of a talk station thingy, and they often have phone-ins. It's amazing how many Pharisees there are in the UK. (laughs) Ringing up, giving views and opinions on how if, if, if we did this and if we did that, it would all be better. But I think actually society is probably a mixture of both. I may get in trouble for this, but I was just thinking about the rioting that happened recently and the wave of public opinion that rose for tough justice. Don't send them down for two months, give them ten years. And the indignation we can feel in our hearts. And in no way am I condoning what they did. But if we're not careful, we can be just like the Pharisees. On the one hand, bang for blood, saying, oh, how things should be so much better, and yet we miss in our own lives areas of deep compromise that we have lived with for year upon year upon year and never dealt with. We need to be different. If we're not careful as a church, we can sit in judgement without an ounce of mercy, grace or forbearance but at the same time be guilty of foul and loathsome... You know what I mean. Loathsome bad things in our own lives. In a book written by Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace, he, he he tells a horrendous account or story of a woman that comes to a friend of his who's a pastor. Now I hope this doesn't offend you, but it's hard-hitting. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through the sobs and tears, she told me she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn 
on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. He goes on and says a little bit more. He says, I had no idea what to say to this woman. But at last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure naive, sorry, a look of pure naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was feeling, already feeling so terrible about myself, they just make me feel worse. We need to be different. We need to be a church that, on the one hand, is full of such holiness, so set apart for God, giving, giving no quarter for sin in our lives, and yet on the other side, extending such mercy and grace to people who know nothing of a Saviour's love, who know nothing of what it is to be loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it won't be that we condone their behaviour or that we say that we are much better or anything like that. But if people do not feel they can come to us and be accepted and received, how can the Gospel ever touch their lives? How can they ever be impacted? We need to be a church that's just like Jesus, full of holiness and full of mercy and grace. Our town, as I said last week, is incredibly thirsty and it needs an authentic church, holy life, set apart for God. But not not people that just then stand back and criticise and condemn, but offer genuine help and mercy to those in need. And the reality of it is we can't do it on our own. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and for within me streams of living water will flow from within you. We can't, we can't, we can't live those lives without the grace and the power of God. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls on the early disciples, why did, why did the Holy Spirit come? Because mere men and women like us are not able to model that sort of Christ life to a dying world without his power and his grace. We either veer to good holy lives, but we can't have anything to do with people that aren't holy, or we veer the other way. Where, are you any different? to those that you say you're looking to reach in your lifestyle. We need the grace and the mercy and the power of God. Guy Miller said two years ago about reorganising. He's um, a guy that came in and he preached. He has uh, apostolic or oversight of a number of churches and he brought a a key word, I believe, for us as a church. One of the things he spoke about was um, uh, reorganising our diaries around people who don't yet know Jesus. 
which is the very thing we've done with community groups. But he also speaks about a fresh evangelistic anointing coming upon us, fresh power, fresh grace to reach those that, that without that we cannot reach. Oh God, we need more of you. Lord, we cannot do it on our own. Lord, we read accounts like that in, in John 8. And if we really plumb the depths of our hearts, we would, we would probably either see ourselves in that woman's shoes or, or maybe we'd see ourselves in the, in, with the Pharisees or, or maybe somewhere a bit in between. But Lord Jesus, we, we, we say we follow you. Oh Lord, we need more of your grace and your power in our lives. As we go out in, as community groups and we touch lives that we will never touch just here on a Sunday morning, oh God, please give us great power and anointing. Fill us afresh. Lord, I pray as a new community groups start, looking to reach teenagers in the town centre on a Friday night, looking to reach the poorest in our society, oh God, would you pour, pour your spirit out upon us. Oh God, we need you. We need you. Let's stand. Don't believe God is just calling us to uh, change the building around a bit. I think in this season God wants to place something afresh in our hearts as a church. There is great, great need in our dear town, in those communities that we serve. I have no idea how most people who aren't here view us, but I'd have thought it's, it's mixed at best. Let's just raise our hands. If you're part of this church or you want to raise your hands, feel very free, welcome to do so. I just want to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and touch our lives afresh. Lord, we are provoked by this passage of Scripture. It's quite hard, really, Lord, to know what to do with it in some ways. But I ask you those two main things, holiness and mercy, would sweep our hearts. Lord, I pray, Lord, if there are people here, I pray if there are people here and they, they're, they're like caught in the headlights, say no, even as I'm speaking, there's areas of compromise in their lives. I pray for your grace and mercy to come. If you are in that position, why don't you just under your breath, just repent, just things like that. Maybe even you feel actually you relate a bit more to the Pharisees things come to mind, not, we're not just looking to dig around, but things come to mind, just confess them. Oh God, I pray for your grace and your forgiveness to sweep in. I pray you administer, you administer to us this morning. Lord, I pray Lord, that as a church, 
Lord, our repu- by reputation, by action, by deed, we would increasingly be known as a church that is holy, we're set apart for you. We're set apart for you. And yet also we're, we're amazingly, lovingly, merciful and overflowing in offering grace and the kindness of Jesus Christ. Whether it's here on a Sunday, whether it's out in community groups, whether it's at school gate, whether it's in the workplace, Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, I ask you, Holy Spirit, would you stir and would you challenge our prayers? We go into this season of prayer and fasting. Would you do something afresh in our hearts? We do not want to be Sunday morning Christians with an air of religiosity added to my normal life. But we say following you, Jesus, should affect the very depths of our being, should affect where we spend our money, where we, how we use our time, what we give our energy to. We say, Lord God, we are yours. We commit ourselves afresh again to you. Come and have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Excellent. We'll close it there. Don't forget, um, women's meeting this evening. Um, Feel free to uh, head along uh, there if you are a woman. Um, Also, if you'd like to know um, anything more about, um, we're considering uh, work for the poor in a community group, um, please uh, do feel free to have a chat to Natalie at the end of the meeting. Um, Have a great afternoon and we'll see you in the week. Thanks very much.